Let's go through every single package installed with a Linux install image. I'm going through the software included with Slackware, but these are all open source applications and libraries, so whether you're running Slackware like me, or Fedora, Debian, BSD, or even Mac or Windows, you can probably download, install, and try these on your computer. So chances are, you'll be able to learn something from this podcast. Let's get started. It makes no difference to you, dear listener, but I did mean to start this recording oh, a good half, a, half an hour ago, and I have been too distracted playing K-Diamond. K-Diamond is, conveniently, the next application in the list of applications we're going to go over on the Slackware install media. K-Diamond is part of the KDE package. It is a little, um, it's a little game, um, sort of like a, I don't actually know, uh, sort of a connect for, not really though, uh, what do you call it? Like a Candy Crush maybe? Is it a, it might be Candy Crush. I don't know if, um, I've never played Candy Crush. So, but I, I think this is that kind of game where you, it opens up and there, there's an array of, of gems in this case. Uh, and actually, of course, because it's a KDE game, you can you can change the theme. So there are different th- um, icons that you can that you can use. Uh, but I, I have it set to a, a sort of a gem. Oh, this is a cool one. Um, <clears throat> Folias, a a leaf theme for K Diamond. I'm going to install that right now. Uh, so you have an array of of say gems, and and you. Click on two of them. You click on one and then another, and, and they need to be, they, they have to be adjacent to one another. You, you click on them, and they swap places. And after you've, if, if after you have clicked on them and they've swapped places, if there are three or more contiguous leaves, then those leaves are, or, or diamonds or gems, whatever. I'm, I, I just switched to the leaf theme now, so um, I recommend the leaf theme. It's actually quite pleasant. And um, those leaves are then removed from the board, so it, it collapses. And and the the aim of the game is to just keep doing that for as long as you have. It's it can be a timed game, although you can play it untimed. And for every row that you eliminate, or every you know, for for some number of leaves, you get some number of points. I, I haven't been able to track exactly what the scoring is, just because I keep getting distracted by the game itself. It seems to be one point for a row of three, and then I, I'm, the thing I can't figure out necessarily is how many points there are for a row of, of more than three. But either way, uh, you can just collect points by, by clicking on diamonds or leaves or whatever theme you're using and, and eliminating them. And it's an endless stream, so it's not like you're ever going to clear off the, the game board. It is just endless stream of things. And of course, if you, if you remove, you know, the big satisfying thing is if you, when you remove a, a row of leaves, which then moves other leaves into position to then be removed. So you get those chain reactions and those are always cool. This isn't very glitzy and, and, and sparkly. Like I, I believe games like Candy Crush to be, I mean, I've, like I said, I haven't played Candy Crush. I've heard of it. I, I, I have this notion in my head, I don't know where I got it from, but there's a lot of sparkles and explosions and shakings, and this isn't like that. But it is very much the same kind of idle click game that you can just kind of mindlessly click, and there's a lot of satisfaction to seeing things sort of get cleared out, and yet never get cleared out. Uh, I, I imagine it would probably drive you crazy after a little while, because there is just no end to it. Like, there's no goal. You just, you play until time is up. And and time the time does seem to go almost slowly in a weird way. It, it, it I felt like it was going a lot longer than, I think it started with three minutes. And it just felt like it was going on forever. Not in a bad way necessarily, but it, there's not, what I'm saying is that it's, I guess, a calm game. You don't really feel any kind of urgency until maybe the last couple of seconds when you realize, okay, well now this is it. Get as many as you can. Um, it's also not a very, I, I would say, a, it's not a very serious game. Uh, by which I mean, you know, if if you tell me that I want to get as many points within a certain time constraint, then what goes through my head 
well, first is that I should be able to, I shouldn't have to wait for animations. That just doesn't seem right to me as in, in, in my, in the part of my brain that is a gamer, that doesn't seem right that I have to wait for animations before I can click something else. At, at the very least, and I understand that the game board is changing, so it, it, you have to wait for things to resolve, but at the very least, I should be able to queue things up even while animations are happening. If, if, the, if the result of an animation renders one of my choices obsolete, that's fine. Just skip over that, skip over that action. Don't, don't carry, you know, go on to the next one. But I should at least be able to, to progress my game while things are being resolved elsewhere. Uh, and then the second thing that it struck me was that um, there's no, you can't really position, you can't queue things up in the sense of, you know, you can't set yourself up for, for clever chain reactions. If you see something that could be moved into a position, if you just moved that one object over just a little bit and then had that thing collapse, you can't do that. You can, you can only move things into, you can only swap objects into position as long as they will result in 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 a a collapse of of leaves so for instance if i have two leaves next to each other and i just want to swap them so that i can trigger a chain reaction somewhere else and then have those be in position to then disappear once everything else falls into place you can't do that you can only swap two objects as long as they you're moving something into into a contiguous row of of three or more, so that's a little bit annoying, um, from a from a gaming the system perspective. But I mean, that's the kind of game this is. It's a it's one of those idle kinds of games where you're not really, I don't think, intended to take it too seriously. It is it is not super strategic. It is a thing to click and to pass your time with. Again, I can I can imagine that if you're compiling something and you decide. Well, I don't want to walk away and get coffee because maybe I just got coffee, but I don't want to also just stare at my screen as the code compiles. I think I'll open up K-Diamond. It's perfectly serviceable for that purpose. Next application. Oh, no, wait, sorry. One more thing about K-Diamond. It, it strikes me that a lot of these KDE desktop games um, are... They, they, they have certain aspects of them that I feel is really significant and i kind of wish more games would would sort of adopt maybe and and one of those certainly is the themeability of them i mean it's it's to me it's priceless that they're themeable that they are themeable uh i think that's a big deal k diamond for instance if if you do the the default configuration which is the egyptian theme which normally i like uh, because I'm I'm a fan of all things Egyptian, but I'll admit that the pale green and the pale blue, uh, the shades of the you know the colors of these little diamonds, the pale green and pale blue to someone who doesn't distinguish colors all that well, or maybe has to have their screen you know tuned in a certain way, I I I can see those being very indistinguishable from one another. Uh, heck. I don't consider myself, I mean, I, I guess I don't consider myself super adept or sensitive to color, but I, I do consider myself sort of, yeah, I, I can tell colors apart, you know, I, I don't, I generally can do that. Um, but, I mean, even I got some of the green and the blues mixed up, you know, I would click, I would click on a, a, a diamond to swap them. And, and it wouldn't swap, and I'd realize, oh, I'm trying to move a, a green diamond into a blue row, thinking that that was going to make one contiguous row, and it didn't. So the fact that you can theme it is huge. I mean, especially if, if, you, if, if you really do have a problem distinguishing colors for, for whatever reason, whether it's just you don't see colors the same way as other people do, or you don't see as well as other people do. It, being able to theme it, I think, is huge. And like the leaf theme, for instance, doesn't rely on colors. You could play that on a black and white screen because the leaves are position are, are in a different position. They're different shapes. They're different positions. 
you you don't have to rely on the color at all. So that kind of thing, and I mean, you know, not everything is a complete package. I mean, this doesn't have a sound, you know, a sound only ver um, uh, mode like the K, what was it, K K memory or K square or whatever that one was called, the memory game. Um, but but the the fact that they are so flexible is is just to me it's it's really really a big deal, and I think it's something that that in general the gaming industry could. Heck, the software application industry could could should take note of that. That's a big big deal, and I, I I don't know. I haven't looked into the theming aspect. I don't know what it takes to create a theme for something, but I would love it if if that kind of thing became really really simple for users, like like trivial, like really really trivial. Like it should be the obvious choice to contribute to your first open source project should be oh make a a new theme for this application or for this for this game or for this whatever like your 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 uh, window decorate you know like all that stuff should just be so simple and i understand that's asking for a lot as it's saying let's rethink architecture but i don't know i think that's the way that we need to go so the fact that k diamond and all these games so far have actually generally made it really easy for that to happen, I think is a is a really really big deal. Okay, next up is KDSSSD. KDSSD is a network monitor for zero conf. Zero conf is the sort of mythical no DNS server required networking protocol. Zero conf or Avahi, I think is the other name for it. And then I think there, yeah, there was another another name for it called Bonjour. So whatever you're calling it, the the idea is that you have a network, and you don't need to spin up a DNS server or service to keep track of the names of the devices on your network. You just each each device gets a name when it gets set up. You know, when you install your operating system on that device, it gets a name. It could be a generic name like your username apostrophe s dash computer dot local, which is a, a horrible naming scheme, but that's what some companies do. Um, but then, they, of course, they have to remove the apostrophe because that's not a valid thing in the host name. So anyway, it's silly, but so whatever, your username and then something and then dot local and, and so on. And, and that's a common kind of uh, scheme for for host names and and zeroconf monitors your network detects those host names and lists them for you so that when you want to connect to another computer you can go over to your local network find another computer to connect to and and as long as you have permissions to connect to that thing uh, then you can and I have to admit I have done very little with zero conf. I also have to admit that I don't feel like it has been very um I, I don't think it's been placed in a in a very significant place in 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 desktop computing so far. I feel like the companies that use it in earnest hide it from their users so that their users are shocked to see that their folders are visible on a network or, or whatever, and then the places that don't use it have it available, but again, they it's not that big of a deal to their users, and so people kind of forget about it. That has been my experience. I don't know if that's been everyone's experience, but I I, I have not found that there has been a lot of uh, adoption of, of ZeroConf in general. I don't know. I Again, that's just my experience. It could be it could be unique to me. I also I don't feel like it is explained very clearly to people where to set that stuff up and what the constraints are. I do think it's technically or or theoretically I should say a useful a useful thing. Uh, you know certainly it would be nice for this to be clearly explained to people and really easy to interface with and so on. KDN, KDNSSSD is a set of libraries to help developers integrate ZeroConf into their applications. That's what this package set is. So there's a couple of readme files, 
and there's a bunch of include files in user include KF5, of course, KDE framework, some CMake files to help everything uh, get configured correctly, and then probably, yeah, translation files. Let's talk a little bit about XML now. Um, KDoc Tools is a package to help developers output documentation from docbook files. I've talked about docbook in the past. I'm a really big fan of docbook actually. I'm, I'm a big fan of XML really because I just love how explicit XML, uh, the, the format, the schema is. It, it doesn't leave a whole lot to question. It doesn't, it doesn't leave much to interpretation. It, it's very clear, for instance, when a tag opens and, and, and closes. There's, there's not a whole lot of room for interpretation there. It's, it's just there. And if a tag ends in a, in a place that it's not allowed to end, then your XML linter can, will catch that and tell you that it's wrong because uh, XML has a schema, a, a list of permitted sort of nestings. Like if, if something can be a parent of another thing, then then it gets through, but if it's not possible for that thing to be a parent of this other thing, then it flags an error. And, and so XML is, is really nice because it fails early. And I've, I've said this before, but that sounds like a bad thing, to fail sounds bad. But failing early is actually really good, and it's a lot better than, for instance, failing later. Because when it fails later in the process, then you don't know how much you've built on top of that. Whereas if it fails early, you know to stop, fix the problem, and then continue building. And that's such a such a an undervalued feature, I feel. Uh, and XML, as opposed to a lot of the common alternatives like Markdown or even uh, even ASCII doc, things like that. And ASCII doc compiles out to XML, so to docbook specifically so that's that's a little bit better there is there, there's that step before you get the errors but uh, ascii doc probably um, i would say a little bit safer than markdown um and and I, I guess you know in theory html or something like that would should be good it's it's almost a form of xml i mean it, it it was for a while, XHTML still is, but I find that there's a, such a tradition of leniency and, and quirks modes for HTML that you don't, you don't actually get to see the failures a lot of times because the, the tool chain just isn't built for that. The tool chain is, is more frequently built to withstand failure. So XML, I have a, a lot of, a lot of fondness for, and for, a very long time docbook i feel was kind of the documentation method for technical projects and since markdown has kind of gotten popular docbook has fallen out of favor a little bit luckily ascii doc came in and kind of did this hybrid model of of something that that feels a lot like markdown but in the end gets compiled out to docbook and that's been i think it's been huge and i wish I, I wish ascii doc would get wider adoption for it um i was using ascii doc for everything for a for a while until i just realized that no one else i should say no one i was interfacing with was using it and so it was just causing really more problem more problems than it was providing benefits and yes you can render out you know, you can you can transform your ASCII doc to docbook and then transform your docbook to really anything. But a lot of the tools to do that transformation would insert a bunch of the, a lot of unnecessary additional stuff that people would have to end up removing. So I just I had to migrate away from from ASCII doc. And and when I'm interfacing with other people for for my current uh, current projects, I, I really write just mostly in raw HTML now. It just seems to be the most direct way to to output, but not necessarily. Some a little bit of Markdown here and there, a little bit of DocBook for my personal stuff. KDoc Tools was built around DocBook though, so there are a couple of different utility scripts here. There's um, Check XML5 and 
I don't know how to say this. I, I assume it's MinePROC5, M-E-I-N PROC5. And then there's documentation about mm, the documentation tools, um, share files, XML style sheets, and things like that. So the two executables, check XML, uh, check XML5 and MinePROC5, uh, or whatever it was, um, are one, check XML5 is essentially an XML lint uh, do-over. So it's, it's XML lint, except specifically for KDE documentation. So it has specialized checks that it'll do, uh, just like XML lint does. And XML lint, if you have never used it, uh, is, well, it's a linter. And if you've never used a linter, uh, a linter checks your, checks code. It, it scans through code and it verifies that that code meets some prerequisite. This is especially convenient for a programmer to have because you can then find errors in what you have typed rather than checking something uh, to see, you know, finding an error during the compile stage. Or in the case of XML, it's not really being compiled, but it's being transformed. Check XML5 looks through your code and makes sure that you, ha you, you don't have errors that it can't parse, and it ensures that you have things that are there that, that it knows are going to be required specifically by the KDE documentation system. MinePROC5 uh, is a transform application, so it takes XML, it parses it, and it transforms it into something else, specifically HTML. This is the beauty of XML. It expects, at least in documentation terms, or maybe in all terms, I mean, XML expects to be transformed into something else. There are very few instances, I, I don't, I wouldn't think, where XML is considered the sort of the final version of data. It's a storage medium. You put stuff into XML so that you can then draw from it and use it elsewhere. Whether that is, you know, you're, you're taking the XML and transforming it from XML to HTML so that you can post a website on the internet that people can browse to in their web browser, or whether you're storing XML uh, configuration files so that then a Java application can parse that can, or any application, I just use Java because it's it's common in, in Java. Uh, it can uh, parse that and, and load in configuration options, preferences, or, or, or whatever. It could be a, a sort of a quick and dirty solution to a, a sort of a lightweight uh, database or, or whatever. So lots of different reasons you might want to put stuff into XML for documentation. It's just a great way to have very, very clearly defined elements of content that you can then use a transform application such as MinePROC5 or XSLT PROC or XML2 or Pandoc, lots of different applications out there to transform something from XML to some other format. And that's a good thing. That's that's its big advantage, I think, or, or one of its big advantages anyway. Next one is k-edit bookmarks, and this is a cool one, not so much for what it is, but for what it kind of deals with. There are a couple of applications within the KDE um, ecosystem that has an option to create bookmarks, and one of the obvious ones probably is Conqueror. It's got bookmarks, it, it does web browsing, that's a pretty standard concept, but also things like Console has bookmarks, and uh, Conversation has bookmarks. The Console bookmarks I didn't even realize existed until I stumbled across K-Edit bookmarks and read the documentation about it and realized there is a way that you could, you can bookmark common locations on your system, and when you open console, console, by the way, is the KDE terminal, in case you're not sure, um, you can you can choose bookmarks, go to your bookmark collection, and open the whole folder of bookmarks, so all of the bookmarks that you've gathered together for a, a specific purpose, in tabs in console. So if you're, you know, if you're frequently, um, I don't know, opening console to do some testing on a Python application you're writing. Maybe you've got one uh, tab open to the Python application itself. Maybe you've got another tab open to the, uh, the the location on your system where those Python configuration files or data files are stored. 
uh, you know, that interface with that Python application. Uh, maybe you've got another one open to your home directory because you've got uh, some assets there that you frequently refer to, whatever. You go to the bookmark collection, you say open in tabs, bang, 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 you're there. You've got a, con a console tab now open to each of those locations and you're ready to start working. So any variation of that scenario, y you can get to a location, or, or I think more importantly, more significantly, to several locations with with essentially you know one click which is, is quite nice and it's kind of funny to say that that's quite nice because i mean this is the terminal why are you clicking at all but i mean it is a modern terminal it's got conveniences and one of those conveniences i have new conveniences that i've discovered is that bookmark feature because there are places that i typically do kind of navigate to for specific tasks and as ridiculous as it may seem i'm just sometimes Typing the full path to that location is just too much trouble. Now, I could make an alias for it or something, or, or a symlink to make it really simple, but the act of opening up a new tab in console isn't, isn't necessarily super easy. And I don't know, it, what I'm saying is it's convenient sometimes to have this sort of, the, the, to take advantage of that GUI layer that you've got in an emulated terminal and, and make things quicker for yourself. So that's... That's a bookmark feature. Uh, the, there's one weird thing about the bookmark feature in at least the KDE version that I'm running here on Slackware, the 25th anniversary version, whatever that is, 5.14 or whatever. Um, it's the, the bookmark, when you add it to your toolbar, it is just the word bookmarks. And the, what's weird about that is that I have my icons set to be icon only. And then, so if you go into sort of, uh, what is it, configure, uh, yeah, configure toolbars, you'll see that bookmarks is, for whatever reason, um, it has no icon and it has text. So what you can do is you can click on, on uh, it's in, where, where did it go actually? Now I don't even see it, main toolbar, there it is, bookmarks. Right click on, no, click on it and then click change text, which is a button down at the bottom, and click hide text when toolbar shows text alongside icons and then change icon and set it to an icon and i just i just searched i did a search for bookmark and there's a bookmark icon bookmark dash toolbar set that to the icon and then you've got a nice little bookmark icon uh, and i say this is important to me because i have my toolbar on the left sort of down the side uh, so anything bigger than a, a small icon makes that left panel uncomfortably large so i just put icons alongside there so I, I need it to be icons not text and that's what it is now so anyway the reason i'm mentioning that obviously is because of this application called kedit bookmarks which is the again you'll recall that everything in, or many things in kde are designed as kcm or kde config modules or uh, what are they called? Uh, parts. There's a Kate part. There's this part, that part. Well, this is one of those things. I don't know what it qualifies as because I didn't. I haven't looked that deeply into how it was programmed. But it's a bookmark editor, and it is shared between applications like Conqueror, Console, Conversation, and and whatever else has an edit the bookmark um, feature. So it's also a standalone application that then is able to see bookmarks from lots of different locations. Uh, having said that, however, I've got bookmarks in console, uh, or a collection of bookmarks, and I'm not seeing it in kedit bookmark. So I'm not sure uh, exactly what's going on there, but in theory, it should be, from what I've been reading, it should be, it should be here. It should be visible here, but I, I cannot see those. You can import bookmarks. You can import uh, bookmarks from lots of different browsers. You can create new bookmarks and so on. Um, and that's nice, but it does feel a little bit almost as if though it assumes that you're using the, that that these bookmarks are being used in Conqueror because it it does seem it feels a little bit specific to web browsing purposes. I'm not sure if if the intent of the application was to encompass more than Conqueror. Or, or whether whether the documentation is simply misleading, suggesting that it's a, a bookmark editor f across all applications, when what it really means is that it edits bookmarks just for Conqueror. Uh, but of course, I mean that that's just the standalone application. The 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 part, the edit bookmark part or whatever it is uh, itself, 
works as expected. So if I go to a menu, Control Shift M in console to see my menu. Oh, I see. It changed my. I never noticed that. Uh, it it changed my menu to an icon. That's kind of cool. I like that. Um, I'm gonna leave it like that. So if I go there and I go to edit bookmarks to my bookmark menu, edit bookmarks, then I'm looking at my console bookmarks and I can manipulate them from there. So it's using the same backend, obviously. It just looks like if you launch it as a standalone application, what it's really doing is launching the console, uh, the conqueror version of that application. There are a bunch of um, options for that command in case you do want to use the conqueror edition of that. There are things to, there's like a flag dash dash export HTML where you can export all the bookmarks from conqueror into a printable HTML file. You can import things like dash dash import moz, M-O-Z, uh, to import from Mozilla Firefox uh, bookmark file or import IE from Internet Explorer favorite format, and, and even Netscape Explorer 4.x, and, and export in the Moz, Mozilla format, and so on. Uh, there's also supposedly a dash dash no browser function, which hides all browser-related functions. I couldn't tell the difference uh, for that at all. Um, and then there's also a custom caption, which is um, not very useful. I was hoping it was going to be a way to launch something that would actually look at console, uh, and it, it, it doesn't. It just sets, like, the... It's supposed to set the... somewhere, the caption. Actually, I don't even see where it's setting that now. So, yeah. Um, standalone, you're, you're essentially, from what I can tell, you're essentially starting the just up a small portion of Conqueror, but like I say, you actually do interact with that same code from within console or from with uh, within another application, just not as a standalone. Uh, so, in other words, this application has been quite eye-opening for me in terms of the possibilities that it's made uh, available, because now I know that bookmarks exist in, for instance, console, uh, but as as an application, it's not ever something I will launch. I will just launch, I will interact with it through through console. Let's go have a cup of coffee, we'll come back and finish this episode up. Coffee has been acquired, and coffee in this case, of course, is being spelt with a K. Next one, ne next application, not next coffee, next application is K-Emoticons. It's not really an application, it's a collection of PNG files to replace common combinations of, of um, characters with little pictures of smiley faces and rocket ships and other things. So this actually encompasses more than just actual emoticons. And in case you don't know, my understanding is that originally there were emoticons. M emoticons were, uh, the at some point, is, is what people called the combination of like a um, colon and a parentheses to, to equal a smiley face. Smiley face turned on its side. Uh, a colon and another parentheses facing the other way uh, would be a, a frowny face, and, and so on. Uh, and then at some point someone came up with the idea of emoji, and emoji were um, the same idea except it would it would swap out some some combination of of special characters with with an image. And these images were created using uh, I guess true type or, or whatever fonts use these days. And so essentially it's a, it's a graphical font. And emoji seem to be pretty popular today. I mean, people I think actually probably uh, arguably even default to those over emoticons these days. I could be I could be wrong about that, but it feels like that. And there are some advantages to emoji. Uh, from what I understand, emoji are uh, a little bit more accessible for non-sighted users because instead of being just, you know, colon, dash, right-facing parentheses, you, you actually hear the description of the emoji to some, to some degree. 
Um, so I, I don't, I can't think of one right now. Um, but well, like, um, colon coffee cup probably, or steaming beverage or something like that. Close, uh, you know, close, uh, colon. So from what I understand, it's a little bit better for, 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 for hearing an image rather than seeing an image. Um, and certainly there are a lot more emojis than there are emoticons, I think. And, um, well, and, and I think there would be probably probably inarguable that there would be more co possible character combinations for emoji because you can just draw on all kinds of unicode um uh encoding or um symbols or or characters i guess glyphs i guess is what they're called whereas emoticons require you to be sort of drawing a picture with ascii characters all 128 of them or whatever there are uh, and it's it's a, it gets to be a little bit a little bit limited i think so although i guess you I, I guess it depends you you could also say okay well our new emoticon method is going to just be arbitrary and and you don't really have to draw anything but i mean that kind of defeats the purpose so anyway emoticons k emoticons is the kde collection of the little images it's going to replace when you do like a colon dash parentheses or a colon or a, you know semicolon dash parentheses um those the, can't think of that many emoticons really um so that's that's what those are and then it also encompasses a bunch of emoji i don't know how many emoji um let's let's do sort of like a maybe a grep for emoji actually i'm going to do a dash i for case insensitivity and then i'm going to do a word count dash l to count the lines 1626 emoji um emoji PNGs are listed in this in this collection. That's a lot. It's probably not nearly as many as as actually exist, but I think there are quite a lot of emoji. Um, I'm going to display one at random. Yep, that's an emoji. It's a flag of some sort. Okay, so yeah, there's just a bunch of a bunch of emoticons and emoji graphics. They're all PNGs, and um, they're all in user share emoticons. Now, some of them, uh, as I say, are called emoticons and then some of them are called emoji one is, is what they're i don't know what that refers to but that's what they're designated as so there you go those those are the emojis who doesn't love a little bit of metadata um i've talked about this before i'm pretty sure and i just wish there was a better way of doing metadata and i know yeah i know i've talked about this because people have emailed me a couple of times about this topic and even with the collaboration of of you dear listener i'm not satisfied with with all the with, with the the options made available to us as computer users to create and and review and search against and, or you know, query um, and just kind of interact with metadata. I, I also don't like it when metadata is forced upon us, um, as it often is in music playing applications, for instance. For the longest time, I just didn't want to use metadata for my files. I knew where my music was. That's what I wanted to use. But every single player I could find would would try to insist on on showing me only what what information it could extract from the files rather than just looking at the file system so I don't know I, I just want I want both things and I want them both to be easy um, and I realize that a lot of metadata honestly really really does depend on either file format or on file system like literally like the file system that you're using such as uh, ext4 or jfs or xfs or or whatever so you know fat32 whatever um so both of those things you can develop your own and have whatever you want but but then you've got your own special thing that no one else is using and so then when you take a file from one system to another you lose all of those extra features and at that point what good is it anyway so I think that this is a big, big issue that faces computer users everywhere, but I, I just don't think that any, I, I don't hold out any hope for the, the wider community of computer users, that is like everyone in the world, to all decide that metadata is really quite important and it should be super easy to edit and it should be supported by all file systems and all applications. That's just not going to happen. So anyway, it's not, it, it isn't where I think it should be. Um, but K-File Metadata is a library set for KDE for, for programmers to be able to use so that their applications can quickly and easily extract text and metadata from uh, lots of different kinds of files. So this isn't something that you and I are going to use unless 
you are a developer developing something for KDE, uh, but there, this is a collection of .so files that extract metadata, like I say, from like an EPUB file. An EPUB has metadata embedded into it, such as the author, the title of the book, probably the page count, maybe? I don't know. No, probably not the page count, because EPUBs are screen things. They don't have pages. I mean, they do, but the, it, it'll change. Um, I don't know, whatever, you know, like whatever, definitely author, like that's DC colon creator and DC colon title, I think are the two things that you, you generally put into an XML file, speaking of XML, uh, in, in the, the root level of your EPUB. And then that can be extracted by some things so that when you're looking at your EPUB collection, you see them by titles and authors rather than by file names. There's an XIV2 extractor, there's an FFmpeg extractor, ODF extractor for Open Document Foundation, Office 2007 extractor, Office extractor, I guess those must be for older versions of LibreOffice. I'm just kidding. That's like Microsoft Office probably. Uh, plain text extractor, PO extractor, Poplar extractor, PostScript. There's a lot of great stuff in there. XML extractor and taglib extractor. So those are all extractors that, that and there's a writer, there's a taglib writer. Uh, so that your application can then write metadata as well. And believe me, that's the kind of thing, that's exactly what you want as a developer. That's exactly what you want when something, you know, when, when you're at, when you're, when you're programming there, there's, at least for me, there's a certain threshold of stuff that you're willing to invent versus the stuff that you don't want to have to think about and just should already exist. And I think metadata extraction is one of those things that should just already exist. I mean, otherwise, why are you using a framework? Why are you using a, a library set at all? Why don't you just, wh why not just program everything from the ground up? So it is really great that KDE Framework has that kind of thing available because it's just something that you're going to want, you're going to need almost, if you're doing an application, you know, for, for that sort of, where you're, where you're dealing with media files and, or, or documents. Um, and, and that makes it super easy. You just, you just invoke that library, you learn a couple of methods, you, you figure out what your, you know, how it works and you plug it right into your application and you don't have to think about how it's happening. It just, it just happens magically. So that's, that's a really, really great. That's like, I think one of the, one of the, the obvious examples of why you would want to use a framework It just, that makes things so easy. Um, and I, I mean, honestly, when I'm, when I'm, fiddling around with code, I, I very frequently wish there was a lot more of that because there are just, sometimes there are, there's a thing that you're doing and you're just like, surely someone else has done this before. Like surely someone has iterated over an array of images and, uh, made them into thumbnails before. Like where's, where's the thing that'll do that for me? Cause you can, you could, you can picture what you want to do and you can, you, you know, the process, you just don't want to have to physically go through it again knowing that someone else has surely done this before, but it's not always easy to go and find where that's been done and then to extract the parts of it that, that, that perform the action and integrate it into your code. But when it's a library, that's exactly what you do. You just include that library, you make a, a call to the, the method that does the thing that you want it to do, and you're done. It's that simple. Okay, uh, kfind is up next, and it is a, it's a search application for your KDE Plasma desktop. It finds files and directories in KDE. K, the find, the kfind uh, tool is a useful method of searching for specific files on your computer or for searching for files that match a pattern. An example of this would include blah, blah, blah. Yeah, we know what that means. Okay. So, um, once again, this is kind of a, uh, it, it's a, I mean, it's, it's a front end to, to the find command is really essentially, essentially what it is. So, uh, you could name, you could look for something. Um, let's do, um, I don't know. Let's do horror, H O R R H O R R O R horror. And then I'm going to tell it to look in the thumb in my thumb drive and I'll include uh, subfolders I will do a I will not do a case in, a, a case sensitive search thereby leaving it case insensitive uh, use files index that seems useful show hidden files no because those will just be backup files 
and then click Find. And then you wait. You wait for it to search the location that you've decided to uh, search, and it is still searching, and it has found nothing, and it is ramping up its... There we go. It's CPU, and we've got some files. There's... Oh, and interestingly, it has... Okay, here we go. So it's it's found some ebooks, and it has found some text files about horror that I've written, uh, and it's still searching. Uh, there should be a lot more than this, actually. But yeah, so that's... Um, that's what it does. And as it's searching, I'm going to go over to a different tab here. There's contents, so you can search contents of things. You can search properties of things. Uh, for instance, you could find all the files created or modified between two dates, or during the previous some number of days, or a file size, you know, being equal to or at least a certain amount of, of kilobytes or megabytes or whatever, owned by a certain user, owned by a super certain groups, and so on. So you can really kind of get very specific about what you're looking for. I don't know exactly what this actually... Oh, wait, I think, okay. I'm going to actually restart this find without the use file files index, because I don't know. Maybe that... I thought it would, like, use file index for what it could use and then continue after that, but it might actually constrain it to only using a files index. Anyway, um, as I was saying, um, I don't know what it's actually using on the back end. I don't know if it's actually literally using the find command or or whether it's something else, but essentially it's a front end to find. And I've talked about find before. I love that tool. I use it all the time. Um, and this gives you a lot of the same capabilities as the find command, so I'm, just, I'm kind of feeling like it's probably just a front end, um, but especially things, you know, where you think, okay, well, I want to find files between these two dates, because I know I was working on it, you know, last week, so I'll I'll do that, or something like that. Um, that's hard to remember sometimes for the find command, unless you use it a lot, or, I mean, if you're really skilled at reading man pages, you could probably figure it out, um, but sometimes it's just kind of nice to have a, a GUI front end to just, so you don't have to think about the, the flags and the options, you just do some check marks, everything, you know, it's like a menu. Everything is there, you just have to choose what you want to enable. So that is kind of convenient. Could be convenient, maybe. Um, having having said all of that, you know, I, I, I don't actually use this. I don't use kfind. I know it exists. I know it also exists within Dolphin, or a find function, rather, exists within Dolphin. And I don't use that. I mean, I, I've probably used it once or twice, but I, I don't generally use that. So these are tools that that I should probably use more to get like sort of more familiar with with what works, what doesn't work, what 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 works best, that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, obviously, once you find a tool that you just that you're really comfortable with, like just the find command, uh, and then piping the results of the find command to parallel to do something really quickly, it's really hard to get away from that. And not only is it hard to get away from it, it it's hard to justify getting away from it because I mean, it's working. It works well. Why, why would you change? Okay, next up is kfloppy. kfloppy is a utility that provides a, a, a way to format 3.5-inch and 5.25-inch floppy disks, believe it or not. I'm pretty sure there are USB 3.5 um, floppy drives. I'm pretty sure I've seen those. I mean, not lately, but I, I, they did exist at least at one point. Um, they probably still exist. Five point five and a quarter. I don't know. That seems like a seems like I don't know about that one. But anyway, if you've got a floppy drive and you've got it inter, you know, so such that it will interface with a modern computer, you have K floppy so that you can um, format that that disk. Now we're talking. I think if if memory serves for a three and a half inch floppy, I think it was a uh, 1.4 megabytes in size maximum, like 1.4 megabytes. Uh, five and a quarter. I don't even know what that was. I mean, I could look it up, but so could you. It, it would be a, not a lot. Um, so anyway, that exists, believe it or not. I mean, I love that that exists. That's the kind of thing, you know, that's, that's what Linux should have, is just ridiculous levels of backwards compatibility. Like, that's a beautiful thing. Okay, next one is, um, maybe possibly the last one. We could, we could open up with a game and then end with a game. There is, this is a Connect 4 game. So, uh, you, the computer, you can play against a computer, you can play against a friend, um, they drop a, a little token into sort of a, a grid, and the goal is for them to 
connect four. And the goal for you is to connect four. Now, as you can imagine, um, one of the techniques used in this game is to block one another from connecting four. So there, there's a little bit of a defensive mode as well as sort of an offensive mode. This is very straightforward. Um, it's it's a nice little KDE game. I, I you know it, it's fun. It's a challenge. Uh, the the computer is probably um, maybe a little too smart even on the easy function, or maybe maybe I'm just frustrated because I wanted to win really easily without thinking about it. Um, but yeah, it's it's well enough done. It's it's a it's a good little good little game. Um, it's a challenge. It's a real challenge actually. Yeah, they just keep winning. The computer <laughs> computer just keeps winning. That's all right. That's all right. But K4 in line um, is a good is a good fun game. If you've ever played, I think Connect Four is what it was called, uh, or Pente. That was Connect Five actually, I think. But um, yeah, if you've ever played that, then you know this this game. Um, now apparently there is a way to play this networked. So you you can you can essentially start a little Connect Four server. And have a friend connect to your your instance and and play each other over the network. I mean, you can also just do couch co-op, where you you drop a a token and then your friend you hand the mouse to your friend and they drop a token and so on. So it's but I mean for a KDE game to have both an AI mode and um and a, a, a co-op version and a network like a built-in little server so you can play over a network. That's pretty amazing. So that's that's a really neat feature, and I, I kind of wish. I mean, I wish all KDE games had the the network feature. I think that's a really great idea. Of course, over a network, you know, you'd have to do either. You could do it as as a, on a as a LAN party, sort of. <laughs> I don't know if that qualifies. Connect for LAN party. Um, you could do it on, on your local network, but if you obviously wanted to do it over the big internet network, then you'd have to open a port in your firewall and forward requests to that port to your computer. So you'd have to do that in order to to get people to, you know, to, to allow access to your computer at a specific port where that, that little K4 inline server is running. But um, you could do it, and, and I think that's a neat option. Okay, I think that's probably it for this, for this episode. There are yet more. There's more KDE. We're up to K Gamma 5. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. My name's Klaatu. You can reach me anytime over email with feedback or comments, tips, or just to say hi. My email address is klaatu at slackermedia.info. You can also reach me on the Mastodon network, not klaatu, at mastodon.xyz. The show's intro and outro music is by Fat Chance Lester. You can find their music on bandcamp.com or on gnuworldorder.info in the archive you'll find a music directory containing the album from which this music has been extracted until next time thanks for listening and keep the source open
trying to give you a pitch, but get this. You and me are going to put on an exhibition with the first and only truly authentic spaceship. <laughs>